You're listening to WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM, Lumpen Radio. And this is Buildings on Air, the show where we talk about architecture and politics. And we've got a really exciting show lined up today. Um, I'm joined in the studio by uh, Eric Ellingson, Leslie Johnson, and Luke. I'm sorry, I'm not good at the, the Polish Kowalczyk. I know, I've lived in Chicago for years and years still. <laughs> yeah, and, and we'll be chatting with them in a few minutes about um, kind of architecture education and academia and politics. Um, we'll be joined by Zach Mortis uh, mm-hmm. later on in the hour, and he'll talk about uh, the Lathrop Homes redevelopment and kind of the future of public housing in Chicago and uh, and what directions that that's heading in. Um, then our ever popular mailbag segment with Anne Louie and Craig Reschke, where we answer your questions about architecture. <laughs> um, there's still time to get questions in, folks. You can go to the chat room on lumpenradio.com and ask away. Um, and lastly, very excitingly, we'll be joined by Priyanka Shah of the Architecture Lobby and Sarah Rafson of Architects. Um, and they'll be talking about the architecture contingent at the, at the uh, Women's March in D.C. So a really good show. First, uh, you know, a little update. So, you know, this is a show about architecture. Um, in, in the sandwich of the show, the, the meat is hopefully some politics. And you might remember a couple of episodes ago, we talked about the American Institute of Architects Statement Gate. And this was when the president of the American Institute of Architects put out this really boneheaded statement about architects working under Trump. Um, it, was, it was really upsetting. There was a huge uproar. We covered it on the show. It was really great. Um, but just by way of an update, um, a lot of the activists around uh, this, who were agitating around the statement gate um, were really pressing the AIA to put forward a statement of values in the affirmative. And last week, they actually did it. So, you know, they put out a statement about how they stand for equity and human rights, uh, how they stand for architecture that strengthens communities, where they stand for a sustainable future, um, protecting communities from the impact of climate change, and standing for economic opportunity, um, among other things. So that's a huge win. Um, You know, I think it's really fantastic that, uh, uh, you know, People are pressing these institutions, whether they're architectural or not, to kind of stand up for um, stand up for what they believe in. Um, and now it's up to us, um, as as the architectural community and people who live and work in buildings all day, to continue pressing uh, these organizations, um, you know, to put their money where their mouth is. Um, so that's an exciting development, and uh, you know we'll we'll continue keeping you guys up to date um, as the show progresses here on Lumpen Radio for Saturdays of the month, two to four p.m. Um, so, uh, hi, Eric, <laughs> Leslie, Luke. Hello. How's hi. it going? Hi. So uh, you know we just we just got some coffee and uh, we are talking about all the different ways in which architecture can be political. <laughs> which are sort of myriad and, and confusing. But, you know, I think um, we've got a lot of people who are kind of maybe maybe curious about, about some of these things. So, um, you know, I, Leslie, you were talking about sort of architectural institutions. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious if maybe you guys want to jump in. Well, you were asking us to talk about politics in the context of architectural education because the three of us are educators, at least, I think, first and foremost, I think, not to speak for everyone else. Um, You know, so our day-to-day is thinking about how people become architects, how they think like architects, 
structures of learning. But I think it's also important to recognize that, you know, a, an architectural education is within an institution. Right. And institutions have political positions, even if they're not allowed to talk about them. Um, but I think there's an even larger one, which is the idea that, uh, <laughs> excuse me, that architects uh, have to go through a long years of education, both in a formal school and also, you know, after school. And that in and of itself does kind of weed out a particular diversity, um, if nothing else, just for cost. <laughs> <Right>. uh, <laughs> and and even if you go through the, the education, you graduate with loans, that makes you make decisions about where you work and who you work for um, based on what you owe. And I think that does color the way that we think about architecture uh, broadly, not to hog the mic here. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is, it's a, it's a good, it's a good point because it's like, uh, you know, if we're talking about architecture for the community and for the well-being right. of, of so many people, um, you know, those institutional barriers kind of keep the community from becoming architects, right? <laughs> and I, I think uh, that's very <laughs> true, actually. Yeah. 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 Licensing exams are uh, very, very expensive. Um, and it comes at the tail end of a, a tremendous investment of time and effort. Um, and obviously, practice is is deeply is deeply political. Um, what jobs you get or don't get, right? Um, and how you find out about them um, is very much about being embedded in a you know class structure and an economic structure. It's who you know and how you know them. Um, so before you even start, you know, putting two bricks together. Um, there's there's all of that, and which jobs you seek out, which ones you don't, and to what extent the um, politics of the client, if there is one, and there usually is one, um, you know, are something that you uh, are in a way uh, you know tied to and tied down by. Um, so all of that makes, I think, uh, working in the built environment a, a deeply, in a way, fundamentally uh, political practice rather than you know tangentially. So, and it's probably important to point out that. Most of the students who are entering architecture school, and I do deal mostly with the foundation level t uh, students, you know, don't don't think of architecture as a as a kind of politically fraught field. Um, I think they think about the form, they think about the material, they think about you know um, all of that, and and maybe sustainability is is something that they think about as having as being part of the value system. Uh, but there's so much more, right? Yeah, and Eric, your your practice um, and the things that you do as an educator—it's very focused on sort of like uh, collaboration and, and getting getting groups together to kind of come come up with some sort of greater project and endeavor. Mm. Um, and and that to me seems almost kind of inherently political, right? Mm -hmm. in, in a world where um, so many so many forces and, and bigger things and pressures mm -hmm. of society are kind of just simply alienating. Hmm. Yeah, and so I'm I'm wondering if if yeah you can maybe give some examples from your practice or, or think hmm. talk about the ways in which you uh, sort of think think through those those problematics. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I you know my my this is a lot of my thinking happens to I think it it takes place through a kind of um, conditioning, uh, trying to work in the conditions through which options evolve. Right. Right. So is it architects or as architecture students or as just citizens that have some, um, um, not just opinion, but want in the experience of actually participating in the design of their community, whether that's like um, having uh, 
not architects design for you, but rather with you, right? Mm-hmm. And something that starts to reflect your values if you're a community, whether it's a memorial put into a place or a park or a garden or a building or a street. And as we know, maybe we've talked about this a little bit before, but someone like Virilio talks about the politics happening not in the streets, but it is the streets. Mm-hmm. And architects are designing, or let's say urban planners, architects, landscape architects. I mean, we work in the realm of um, we endorse systems that we're not conscious of supporting often by the materials we choose. Mm-hmm. We, as we were talking about just a few minutes ago with coffee, we we kind of teach how to learn rather than necessarily a, a content or information that's communicated across what we learn. But what I'm what I'm trying to do both in the classroom and I think we all share these these ambitions is to kind of give the create and choreograph a kind of environment around which. Uh, the complexity of dimensions can be felt mm-hmm. in terms of an architecture project from the building materials and the policies that and the systems that connect those materials as options for us to use. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of selecting from someone's options already what we can use, uh, uh, different green qualifications or lead qualifications. Whatever it is, we start to meet a set of criteria that um, narrows down someone, where do we actually get to choose the conditions which generate options? in the classroom and in the in the world and the practice. This sounds like maybe a little bit out there, but very specifically, do we get an experience of do we do we teach what something means or do we get an experience of, of meaning, of creating meaning together with the community right. or with the community of students or with the community in terms of a public uh, a client or whatever you would call like a kind of base you're designing with yeah. Yeah, these are good questions. And, and for me, it brings to mind this in the process of doing those things and asking those questions, um, you start to understand like uh, architecture as a kind of uh, unique cultural practice that because of the capital investments that are involved in and, you know, having to deal with the client and all, and all of these issues, you you sort of have to wrestle with the, the reality of the world, right? Good, good bad, and, and otherwise. And, um, you know, a lot of times that, that process, when you frame it like that, it helps you to use architecture as a as a kind of uh, illustration mm-hmm. of the these very abstract forces, right? I mean, we talk about capitalism, neoliberalism, and like uh, and, and and these different things. But but art, the power of art and, and architecture, um, is is often simply to elucidate these things. Well, do we, right? So do we create representations of reality? We render we create renderings of reality in architecture mm-hmm. school. But do we render the world more real? I mean, and so I think where we're also working in is how do we how do we create a context in which we can actually have the experience of trying to act, you know render the world more real in a in a way. Well, and it's it's difficult to to replicate the kind of cognitive dissonance of the capital effects and the social effects and. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes students, you know, they'll tend to use this phrase in real life, you know, as though <laughs> right. what they're doing in school is not real. And I and I, I always repeat the same mm-hmm. mantra, which is that this is real. This is happening. Right. You know, I mean, you're what you are proposing is laced with whatever intentional or unintentional yeah. political conditions, most of which is actually repeating their own life experiences. And I think that's something that's particularly interesting in the in the context of IIT. Um, I, I teach at IIT. Yeah, we, we all, all do. We're actually. all IIT folks. <laughs> um, is that we have a really large uh, international student population, and I think that that what that brings is a conversation about assumed conditions and in, in cultures, and particularly in the studio that I I run, where we talk about housing and dwelling. 
it's it's kind of amazing. You know, I'll have a conversation with a student talking about townhomes, and in a way, he'll say, "I have no idea what this is." You know, I understand the the McMansion out in the suburbs and the massive high rise. You know, from Beijing, let's say. And but this townhome thing, I don't get it. You know, and so to try to talk about, you know, post-war housing in the United States, or even. You know, you realize like this is great. Actually, mm-hmm. we get to have a, a conversation that maybe even questions some of my assumptions right. in a way. And I, you know, I think in in some capacity, maybe it's because what I teach, um, the, the way that we frame historical conditions or existing conditions is often the best opportunity to talk about how architecture is the streets. I literally talk about that <laughs> in my urbanism class. You know, the divided right away as an expectation of a. Uh, a particular civilization is 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 different in every city. Um, what do you and, mean? What do you mean by divide? divide oh, sorry. Right away? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the way that a street is divided. Um, yeah. You know, this, I always say that the street is the building facade to the building facade. The road is just the thing that the vehicles drive on, and the street is sidewalk, buffer zone, curb, mm. divided lanes, bike lanes. I mean, think about all the things that could be part of the street and. That's actually a political statement about value system. Well, it's yeah. also, th- so the thing of the curb as a good example, yeah. if a curb is 90 degrees to the street, it, yeah. it's a condition that generates certain options for, for moving across exactly. it or with it. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, in Holland, the curbs are often at 45 uh-huh. degrees. So cars can occupy the same, same space as trams, as bicycles. Literally, you know, cars driving behind trams. Uh-huh. Um, so your that simple material constraint starts to generate a whole new set of possibilities. It's a very it's very formal, but it also it reconditions the options around which people can move, the speeds they have to move, and then they have to kind of legislate how they move together in a safe way. Right. Um, so they have some kind of self determination on what. What that mean now? How do I regulate my speed against a tram and against a bike and against a? And walker? it's interesting how some cities, even Western cities like London, are starting to embrace you know shared space conditions where there's no division, um, mm-hmm. which of course reconnects the social. Um, right. Um, not to just talk about urban infrastructure too. Uh. <laughs> my my teacher's instincts want to wants to step in right now <laughs> and, uh, uh, and explain why the conversation that we're having is really is really profound because you know if you're uh, an 18-year-old student, and you show up in my class, um, you know, we're going to have to have a conversation about what uh, uh, is politics. And it's not going to be, uh, okay, electoral politics, you know, who you voted right. for this year. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at the very end, yes, in some sense, yes, there's a kind of link through to that. But um, we have to talk about the rules, mm-hmm. uh, explicit and implicit, that govern our world. Right. Right. Um, there are rights uh, and our responsibilities, right? And, you know, the protocols by which we uh, set values and make decisions. Right. And we, uh, I think, understand that those are written down and that, you know, we can like, get busted when we don't meet them, right? right. You know, that comes uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> intuitively, right? Uh, but, to, but to, you know, then begin to think of the built environment um, as a concrete, mm-hmm. uh, material, physical, uh, and in a way more permanent. Um, not just illustration, but instantiation of those laws. Those are the those are the laws made flesh or made stone, and we can make those laws uh, by placing our stones, let's say, carelessly or without thought. We can write really bad rules for interacting and making decisions and setting values if we don't think about um, right. what the implications are. Right. Um, 
So, so to make that connection, you know, that the built environment is in a way the kind of uh, rule system within uh, which we live, I think is probably the primary, the first thing we have to establish as educators is that there's a continuum there and it's profoundly important because the material environment is not written on paper and we can't like cancel, you know, it's like, oh, bad law, okay, we've repealed <laughs> it, great, fantastic, you know, it's like, yeah, we just built a city uh, badly. Right. Right. Uh, and so now what are we going to do with the, you know, millions of tons of stone that we've set in place? Yeah. Uh, because we've just realized that it's not what we want. Right. But Eric, before you jump in, just just to say, like, you know, I, um, I wonder if badly is like really like the right like sort of framing for this, because a lot of times I, I mean, I think you've you've. you've that was really beautiful and like uh, you really beautifully sort of illustrated the way in which like these sort of invisible rules like man manifest themselves and become physical and then become rules unto themselves right but um, you know a lot of times like that process is the uh, even though no one is uh, individually sort of conscious of it it's very sort of intentional and conditioned by a system right so so a lot of times like uh, what we perceive as bad is 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 good for someone right like there's a there's a logic behind it and and, uh, um, and 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 maybe that's why like one of the sites of architectural agency a site that I'm really interested in is 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 saying like hey like this is this is bad for us as as citizens right but it's it's good for someone like there's there's a there's a reason and and, and we can do something about that as architects as citizen architects and and, and citizens yeah. Well, what if, I mean, so if we add to that, too, so the dimension, I mean, on the one hand, you know, I think designers are, hopefully good designers are dimension adders. They add dimensions, or at least they increase the dimensions, the contact with the dimensions of, of, the, of, a, of a context um, of a group. And so I think what you all are also talking about now are the kind of, let's say, forces and constraints, policies, mm. uh, regulations that are shaping um, the cities maybe in a material way or how architects do that. Now, what if we return back, we add to that the kind of a physical literacy, like we're all kind of, you know, we embody knowledge, it's haptically, it's experientially mm -hmm. gained. We have an experience of something. Um, usually there's a more of an adhesive, like a glue, it sticks to us better. We, right. you know, it kind of, we don't just reflect that we've learned something, we refract it, it goes mm -hmm. through us, mm -hmm. um, it changes. And then, you know, if we do that with a community of people, um, there's something, let's say, um, that we become conscious. It, it's almost like a conscious or awareness machines. Hmm. And so how do, we, um, how do we work with ourselves also in the constraints that we come with and how we sense the world, how far we can see, how far we can listen? You know, the radio uh, station has a range that we're on right now. How do we make the boundary of how far the signal is being communicated explicit so it's felt, so it's not conceptual, mm -hmm. it's not abstract. It actually, you know... I did a project in South Korea where there was a mobile radio station that was going through all these kind of um, empty or unused urban situations, and it had a very defined small radius, and it was in co coordination with a couple of cultural museums, institutions, and so they handed out headsets and things like this. But, you know, the, the thing that I was trying to do in that was basically have people walk the edge of where they could start to, they could receive the transmission, right? So they became aware of their own, the, the actual space, the dimension of how far we could hear each other. And it was not so far away that I could actually see where you stopped hearing the signal and I could see where Luke stopped hearing the signal. And, I, and that, that became experienced in a tangible, physical way. 
So, you know, one example, I'm trying to also think you said, you know, give an example that's tangible. Yeah. So in last semester, I taught a class walking the Chicago boulevards. Rather than it being about, let's say, Chicago urbanism or boulevards, we spent uh, 13 of the 16 weeks walking three to three and a half miles a week, the entire boulevard system, um, talking to, you know, park commissioners, uh, present advisory council members that, you know, mediate between the communities that the parks serve, and uh, and and what are their you know what are their values? What are their issues? And one of the ways that we did it was we started. It's um one we just kind of I kind of opened it up to play. Right. So the content became something that we generated just by play. But we also how far could we hear each other? So we would talk and actually map the space by something I could see your lips moving, and then where do I get where I can't hear you? So what other senses start to take over in a mapping of the space? That's mm-hmm. kind of we take for granted. But then we also picked a poem uh, that was read at the first inauguration at uh, Obama that Obama chose for mm-hmm. um, during the um, inauguration. Um, uh, sort of incredible uh, poet, and we walked and everyone took lines and week to week we started interrupt. We would walk along and ask people, "Could you tell us what this means and uh, translate it into your own language?" And essentially, we had I don't know a hundred encounters over the thirteen weeks or so. But we basically created. Uh, Rather than talking about that we need to get kind of ethnographically involved or, you know, working with communities and sort of go back to some of these cultural skills, these social skills, we actually walked up to strangers and had conversations, sometimes 20 minutes long, about (laughs) the meaning of a word and why this was relevant to their lives or not. And then the students had to find ways of kind of capturing what was said and how it was said rather than just the meaning of what was said. And and then we worked together to put that back into a kind of translation. Mm -hmm. But in other words, we, we embodied the... Well, it's content a, rather than just kind of learned about it. It's right. something that, you know, we, we talk about in, in the studio space or in education. You know, in design, you have to sort of become many agents in your head. Um, we tend to use the word agency. <laughs> you know, that if you're designing a school, you're thinking about the, the student, the teacher, the janitor, the principal. You know, how can you embody the headspace of what each of those people needs? And not just in that it's a list of requirements, but to actually be that person in your model, be that person in your drawing. And I think that's incredibly difficult for any human being to do, really. It's a kind of empathetic mode. Yeah, because it's yeah. really about empathy at, yeah. at its, at its yeah. uh, you know, I guess simplest level. Um, but we do it with this kind of cognitive consciousness, you know. It has to be something that we do rigorously, and we think, yes, the janitor has the, the right mop bucket. And I think to develop that kind of empathy as a designer, as an architect, in a way, it's almost impossible to do just through saying, now you will think this way, you know? Right. And so what you're describing is a, a form of learning that through the body, right? Learning and that through... It. And doing it. Because right. I think we're still, at, at any case, humans. We still think narratively. That we think in stories. And, you know, the stories of those people or the stories of the interaction with those people is the way that, as a student or even, frankly, as a practicing architect, you often get that embodied agency yeah certainly and you know i think um in especially in architecture school but but also when you're in the world of practice you know a lot of a lot of lip service gets paid to community design and participatory design and, <laughs> and all of these things right but but uh, i think a lot of folks are just 
really confused about what that yeah. means or, or don't put their money where their mouth is. And that's really that's really or, the building block. I, I, on some level, it's really just not complicated. It's uh, being empathetic yeah. and being a human and um, trying to True trying of to most relate. things in life. Yeah, right. Wait, but, 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 <laughs> but I think that there's a, a, a key distinction that needs to be made, which is that I think that when most schools um, – talk about sustainability or, you know, community informed mm-hmm. or participatory practice, you know, they're thinking, okay, that's a value system. Okay. So yes, we've acknowledged that architecture is uh, deeply enmeshed in our value systems. And insofar as politics, as we usually think of it is about negotiating our collective values. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, we do that in the built environment as well. And so the built environment is a kind of landscape of negotiating values. What's bad for some is good for others. And that negotiation takes place. And okay. Right. You know, um, but so when, you know, schools begin to espouse values, okay, we're going to be about sustainability. That's great. I think that that's not necessarily mm-hmm. the way to frame uh, the role of politics in architectural education, because what we need to develop in the students is a, a kind of literacy of politics right. and mm-hmm. the skills for negotiating these complex and kind of multivalent, multidirectional overlapping interests and the fact that not all value systems are developed, that some are developing, right? right. Um, or so, invisible. Yeah. Or, yeah, visible and invisible. So the question is how to develop a, a skill set where students, again, individually and collectively become literate and capable and competent in, in developing um, value systems, not in espousing them. And so, hmm. you know, to my extent, you know, like when, when a school says, hmm. okay, we're about sustainability, that's espousing a value hmm. system. And that's okay, you know. But I think that's not the school doing its job as a, as a as an as an institution as an educational, of, as an educational institution. Right. It's doing its job as you know as for well, advocacy. And I'm not against advocacy, but my job is an educator, right? right. Uh, not an advocate. And so well, or the dis- distinction between education and training. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, you're right. not being trained to think a certain yeah. way. Yeah. You're being yeah. educated to think. Yeah. Um, so, so that you know, how we do that, and what is a curriculum that is about developing the literacy, as opposed to you know, accruing or accumulating or checking off the list all of the popular you know value systems of the moment. Well, that's there's a gulf between them, and I think they're very different strategies. Right. So this is you know because I think what uh, Lukash is is also speaking towards, which I think is fundamental to both teaching and practice, is you know that we're also participating as teachers, as learners, as producers in kind of creating our own positions and not just inheriting the positions that are kind of the systems around us are legislating. So, you know, where do we, as whether as we're, if we're students in it, we're teachers in it, we're practicers in it. I mean, where do we get to start to have agency like uh, the word Leslie was using? Um, you know, where do we get to start to have unpredetermined or, you know, outcomes that can emerge from a classroom yeah. mm-hmm. from a from a, a building situation, um, so this is I think this is really important what you were putting your hand on. I, one other thing too to go back to what Leslie brought up at the beginning with like just even the simple thing of cost of schools. I mean, if we talk about education as a from someone like uh, Paulo Ferri that would talk about critical pedagogy, and you know start to critique a system in terms of what are the priorities of the system inside of which you're learning, mm-hmm. and what are you affirming, and what are you kind of um, giving more power to, by not questioning the terms of, right. of in which learning is taking place. So, you know, 
he and you know people that come after him you know they have the idea one make the road by walking you know we right. make it by going we don't just take the road that's let's travel because that's also the wrong road you know, right. to take. Right. You know but how do we make the road as we go there yeah and then the second but then if you're making it or whether it's an edu- a class or a lesson or you know something built um and this is goes back to what leslie brought up is you know, we're all of the system, every private institution, and I think a lot of the public institutions oriented around learning are profit-driven systems. Yeah. And there, you know, he has a word for it, he calls them banking models. Right. You know, you treat a student as an empty vessel waiting to be filled with either values or positions yeah. or something they need to espouse. Yeah. And then they kind of reflect that they've, they've got that down by the time they live, yeah. that they leave. And then when they practice, they start to, um, you know, like capital, right, um, right. Sh- show a increase in the investment right right and this is a this is a model that we should be questioning anyway whether we're teachers in it or we're administrators in it yeah it's yeah that's or great students in it yeah well and uh on that note we're gonna take a couple minutes a, a little short break this you're listening to buildings on air and we'll be back with these three guys in a second <laughs> All right, we're back with Buildings on Air. So we were just talking about sort of education and value systems and, and how you train sort of students and, and, and folks to en- engage with those and to um, build their own road as they're walking, as Eric so beautifully put it. Um, you know, quoting I, someone else. Quoting someone else, <laughs> right? <laughs> you can take the credit, it's fine. <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Um, and... I wonder, it's, you know, when students go into the working world, right, we talked about, like, these invisible value systems that are set up, you know, a, a, lot, of, a, lot, of, uh, a lot of them are sort of unprepared to deal with uh, the realities of work and, and how to kind of implement some of this thinking, right, in, in the day-to-day reality of working well, and, and practicing. I think, um, if I could, Please. Uh, I think one of the interesting things that, I hope will change mm-hmm. uh, in the near, near future. Maybe in our current climate, it will. Um, is that you know uh, schools are required accredited architectural schools are required to have a certain number of credit hours in, mm-hmm. in pro professional practice classes, pro practice. Right. And you know, for the last I don't, I don't know forty years, thirty years that they've existed uh, as classes, they really are about teaching students the business contracts, um, many of which are like reading AIA example contracts, things like that. Mm-hmm. And I know that there are a few schools that are starting to do this, but I think that the, really those classes need to be about what is the model of architectural practice, um, because mm-hmm. that is, is changing. Um, if anything, I would suggest perhaps it closed down in the 20th century a little bit into that very refined, you know, or the triangle between the client, the contractor, and the architect right. as separate things. And that's really started to explode uh, everything from design, build, in-house to the idea that architects can practice architecture without without clients, with, I know that sounds strange, but they do. Um, you know, what does it mean to practice architecture? Is it just about working for a particular hired client or be hired by a client, build something. You know, I think the value of architects is that sometimes maybe they can be the expert that says you don't need to build something new. Um, And this is architects also not advocating for their values, uh, their value, not values. Yeah, as uh, Um, as workers. Yeah, or as thinkers, you know, Mm -hmm. what is is our actual contribution? And Mm -hmm. um, so I wonder, you know, that our, our coursework might actually be 
hindering this conversation about what does it mean to enter the work right. work environment uh, yeah. and not just survive a, a practice in a traditional sense but to actually think about what what is your contribution right. as a part of this labor well, and I, and I, I think that's really great and I think there's also an element to it where folks can actually um, be trained to see that kind of boring contractual stuff and the stuff that does get taught in professional practice as a, as an actual site of agency in and of itself, right? So, like, uh, oftentimes we kind of understand, um, you know, construction documents that really are, are really boring technical drawings and our specification documents, which are, you know, basically novels written about materials and how they can be installed and under what conditions, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we tend to view that as something that's a, a burden, right, on, on architects or a way for us to limit our liability when the, when, when the kind of rubber meets the road. Yeah, well. but, but these are actually, uh, you know, things that we can we can enter into um, and start to think about how those contracts and legal structures that often get ignored or kind of relegated to, um, you know, business-minded people um, can can have an effect. You know, I'm thinking uh, Joshua Prince-Ramus from Rex um, Architects. He, he is kind of rails on this on his lecture circuit um, mm-hmm. about rewriting the contract structure. And he, he kind of gives it to anyone that right. asks, you know, how to include a, a period of time for analytical thinking, for research, for, right. uh, frankly, reclaiming some control over those phases yeah. for architects. But I also think younger younger practices, and, you know, in architecture, young means, like, up to 50 years old, you know? So even the, the kind of emerging practitioner youth uh, <laughs> model is different, I think, than the general public. But they're rewriting the way that they work, you know, developing right. financial stake with uh, including a financial stake with developers or doing things that are not necessarily client-driven work and mixing that together. Yeah, um, I think that's where uh, my students, uh, that's the future of practice. Well, it's like uh, Alexander um, Aravina, right? yeah. um, you know, building half of a house, right? And then right. allowing the other half. So basically the, architecture take, the architect takes responsibility for some of the technical infrastructural um, um, foundations and systems that are the hard stuff right and then you know but literally leaving a space where people could grow as a family grow as a community and put their own and that project's interesting as well because he he worked with the local timber company Mm. so even the the construction the structure of the half of the house and he's and he works with you know Hernando de Soto, right. the economist, right. Southern Hemisphere economist, that's really also talking about the same things you are de working Soto in policy. Yeah. Working in policy it's is working the in the conditions around which options generate. We don't. We yeah. learn, I think, how to work within codes, but do we work? Do we learn how to actually work within the design of policy right. too, or through it? Well, and this is one of the kind of key points of intersection, I think, between you know us as as being sort of maybe politically minded architects and and uh, you know the the general the general citizenry right is that uh, Michael Sorkin has this great book called local code um, and I you know we were talking about kind of the invisible rules of urbanism and and sort of how those dictate things and, and Michael Sorkin said well I'm gonna write my my own city code that starts to address these things and talk about how um, you know how how a city can be written better, right? At the at the level of its legal DNA, and uh, well, this is this is Kulhas's, yeah. Rem Kulhas's premise of you know delirious New York is could you actually like retroactively rewrite the right sort of zoning? And, and, thinking. But someone like Sorkin then can materialize yeah. that imagination in an architectural way, so he can say, 
someone say, okay, what does that mean? Right. Give us a rent, yeah. you know, play it out in space. And he can say something with his team, say, all right, well, let's say we turn, we close down the streets and we actually turn the street into a whole nother real estate in which we could put vertical farms or whatever yeah. it is. Mm-hmm. And suddenly the sidewalk, you know, so we're not now privileging transportation, but we have a whole new real estate on these and in and, and, and which we could play out of kind of 40% of a, a unavailable land that's right in front of us if we just disprivileged the systems that we think that's for, the cars. But such a simple rendering. Once you have that idea, you can produce a very simple rendering of that in terms of an image. Mm-hmm. And then people can, through that image, perhaps be empowered to take that into some, you know, translate that into some version of reality. But it's doing both, right? It's negotiating maybe a local policy, but it's also... Right. Kind of making it tangible in a way that architects, I mean, we do spend a lot of our time in craft and drawing and some kind of relationship sure. of care with an image, what that image might mean, who it, what it might mean to the community people looking at it. Does it does it narrow imaginations or does it leave room for the people's imaginations looking at it? And we, we all That's know a these. a topic for a whole really other conversation. Show. <laughs> um, but in, in a way, this is what we, is implicit in what we learn as architects. I mean, almost every designer learns this. And I mean, not just architects, but right. whether you're an art student, a, a landscape student, a, a graphic design student. Well, in or, a way, I think our job, our responsibility, I suppose, as yeah. educators is to have both things happening simultaneously for the students, that they're unpacking the world that they see now and that they live in and are citizens of and trying to understand its layers and then also projecting other possible conditions doing both simultaneously right. is hard I mean, <laughs> but it's I, go ahead no I, I just you know sitting between these two guys in the studio is <laughs> tremendously exciting because you know um they're they're painting this picture of architecture as kind of transformative um, <laughs> art you know and, right and yeah no no and it's, oh, no, don't, don't break us down at the no, end of the segment no, no. <laughs> no but it's no it's it's amazing you know so we're, we're, we're doing this kind of thoughtful we're thoughtful insight into the built environment and then we're like you know pulling the strings and changing little things and all of a sudden long established orders are being upended you know when we're changing the angle of the curbs and like human <laughs> humanity's changed for the better we're and it's thinking just long arc of history well, <laughs> it's just and it's just just fantastic um um but i think i think that uh, uh that their optimism is is hard earned um and miles uh, miles away from where the minds of most uh, students coming into architecture, I don't think they see the possibilities of their work in such, uh, you know, amazing uh, um, terms. I think that they're coming out of a fairly institutional educational environment where they're, you know, um, punished for, um, you know, stepping outside of line and and rewarded for getting uh, good grades on tests. And so that mindset uh, between the way that you're talking about the way that you could practice, you know what I mean? And, you know, what, what I think has been inflicted upon most uh, um, students in most, uh, you know, in sort of so-called first world countries um, through their education, that's a, that's a huge dissonance. So you really have to change the way that these um, young people think. And I, I, I love teaching precisely because of this, because it doesn't even take that long. It only takes a few weeks for, for a few months um, to, to a- awaken ambitions on that scale. Right. Um, and so I think this is where um, I just want to, Put, put a Mind plug out there for for architectural education. I think more people should get involved uh, <laughs> uh, because it. But but um, but it, but it but it's also difficult. Yeah. Um, because the reality is is that uh, you know they're already forty thousand dollars in debt and they just walked in the door. Mm-hmm. You know, in the first week and they. <laughs> yeah. 
they're already kind of screwed. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's, and it's, you know, um, so, so all of the pressures that you opened, Leslie, that you opened the, uh, uh, the conversation with are, are present. And yet in the face of all of that, in the face that then they're going to have to get a job it, that they might not like because they need to pay, their, yeah. pay off their loans mm-hmm. and all of that. And their practice might be squeezed through like, you know, toothpaste tube because they're yeah. just trying to get a client so yeah. they can get a job, right. you know, and get a gig and, and make, uh, uh, you know, make ends meet. Um, the gap yeah, between the that and what you guys were just talking about is enormous. Um, it is. Well, the discipline still is, I mean, it is a discipline of often reinforces privilege. I mean, yes. you know, to borrow, I mean, I, I borrowed hundreds of thousand dollars to do a graduate degree and I will pay this, I will be finished when my kids go to school, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and so, but that, you know, so that does kind of indenture you in a certain way to a kind of option, a set of options you have. But so I agree with that. I liked the, but we stay, we, something between optimism, a non naive optimism, yeah. maybe. Yeah, but, well. right. but maybe going back to even where we opened, architects yeah. and poli- architecture and politics, like maybe one of the ways that it, even the, the question, the way that's framed is could be uh, rethought. So what if it's not like, you know, the elephant in the room? What if the room is the elephant, <laughs> right? And we actually start thinking about this as not like kind of politics goes into architecture, but it is a, a kind of, um, it is itself, as I think we've all been it saying. Is. It yeah. is yeah. It, to say everything's politics is is uh, tautological, right? We can, mm-hmm. but we but say to, everything is architecture, but yeah. right. But to say everything as architecture or design is kind of focused care, right? Where do how much care? Where do you focus your care, and where? Right. Do, and then in that, where does that care leave room for? kind of fetish of a craft, if you're talking about wood or brick or selection materials, or a focus on a community on how those things Well, we think about what the legal structure of licensure or, or is. All of it. It's really health, safety, and welfare, mm-hmm. right? And I think defining mm-hmm. what health, safety, and welfare means, I don't know that I agree with what the current you know, legal mm-hmm. code right. says is health, safety, and welfare. I right. mean, yes, people should have natural light in their yeah. sleeping spaces, but Maybe welfare is also a question of a certain mm. amount of open right. space, uh, a certain amount of publicly owned mm. space. Right. So I have to, I have to start wrapping oh, us sorry. up here. No, it's great, and and I but I, I really like this. Uh, yeah, health, safety, and welfare. Ostensibly, that's that's what our licensure is here for. Yeah, and um, I think in in the next four years, we'll all be challenged to uh, take an expanded view of what that means and to start to kind of uh, bridge bridge that gap that that Luke was mentioning. So, um, well, thanks, thanks for joining. Thank um, it was, a, it was a pleasure. Um, and this is Buildings on Air. We'll be back in a few minutes. Thanks. Welcome back to Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. So, I'm here joined by Zach Mortis, an architectural journalist based in Chicago, and uh, you have, you also have kind of have like a what's maybe perhaps. A sister show <laughs> to uh, Buildings on Air. I would Something hope. like that. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, it's a a lot. You got to holler a podcast on architecture and design from New City, um, and today you're here to talk about the Lathrope Homes redevelopment. You wrote this very beautiful article in a um, in Architect Magazine um, about kind of the redevelopment project that's going on. And kind of what its implications are, and some some of the uh, history behind the project. Um, so, yeah, jump in. Tell, give us, give our listeners some sort of background and yeah, summary absolutely. of the article. Yeah. So, Lathrop Homes was one of the first public housing projects the Chicago Housing Authority uh, ever did. Uh, kind of low-rise townhomes and small garden apartments. Uh, it was completed about 1937 on on the north side, right there along the Chicago River. 
and uh, notably amongst Chicago Housing Authority's uh, set of buildings is it's designed phenomenally. It's got this really beautiful kind of art moderne uh, New Deal humanity around it. Uh, it's a fantastic space. Uh, if you ever get a chance to check it out, I, I definitely recommend it. Uh, and it's uh, it weathered um, uh, everything uh, <laughs> the Chicago Housing Authority went through and, and put their properties through uh, going back you know, almost 100 years. And uh, it's been so successful that they are turning a big chunk of it over to private developers to flip for market rate housing. So they've got this gem of, to this day, pretty well-functioning uh, public housing. Uh, and, you know, they're going to they're bringing in good landscape architects. Uh, that's MVVA, Michael Van Valkenburg. Hired some yeah. quality Chicago architects. Juan Moreno is renovating the units. And, yeah, it's going to be dog parks and kayak slips and a whole lot less poor people. Uh, and if you talk to, to some folks, including myself, that seems like a really huge missed opportunity. I mean, CHA, going back to the, plans for, the plan for transformation, uh, which is kind of the bomb that uh, leveled all the, all the dysfunctional high-rises, they've been all about mixed-income communities. Uh, that's really the only thing they've been, they've been building back. And you know, if you zoom out from Lathrop just just a little bit, the tiniest bit, you see that you're in Roscoe Village. You're in these very kind of affluent neighborhoods. Right. And uh, so, hey, that's we got it, nailed it, guys. It's, it's a de facto <laughs> mixed income community. Um, but yeah, they're they're going to be uh, siphoning out uh, more opportunity, the opportunities for more poor folks to live there. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, I thought that was a really good point in the article, which was that, yeah, the transitioning from sort of concentrated poverty, you know, the, the towers in the park model um, to like mixed income has is it's really like uh, fraught with issues. Right. And I, I, I love that where it's like everyone's talking about mixed income, public housing and affordable housing. But, you know, part of it is just being in, in a in a community, right? That even if it's totally affordable, 100% affordable, right? It's still going to be on the on the north side of Chicago, um, sort of right up Damon Avenue, right. Um, and and you know, it's really it's a really peculiar project when you when you drive by it because it's not very tall, right? Like it's it still has a lot of those elements of kind of. Um, the projects, um, but but there's some there's something different about it that maybe speaks to kind of the power of architecture, uh, if if we can uh, be so bold, yeah, to um, to really kind of make people's lives better. Yeah, right? that really speaks to in a lot of ways the landscape plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, the architecture, as I said, is good. It was designed by uh, Hubert Burnham. Uh, Daniel was his dad, <laughs> and Robert de Goyler, who did lots of kind of uh, fancy early 20th century. High rises. Uh, so yeah, there, there's lots of grace and, and great detail in the architecture. But Jens Jensen was the landscape architect, kind of the dean of uh, Midwestern American um, Prairie style right. landscape architects. And so we had this really kind of broad, uh, open community green that really anchored the space and, and gave this kind of quasi-public. Uh, you can kind of look at that as kind of like the, the defensible space type element that was often missing from uh, from public housing buildings, right. and so yeah, defensible space. That's a Jane Jacobs idea, right? Uh, sort of. I mean, she kind of critiqued it. Um, it was a I, I've forgotten the guy's name, but that kind of came out of uh, the run up to um, all the cities tearing down there. 
high-rise projects, and it was, I think it was like a study that HUD commissioned, like, to say, like, why are, why are these projects falling apart and being completely dysfunctional? Um, but yeah, so, I mean, the, the Jens Jensen's original landscape plan, it was all about uh, kind of community and, and solidarity. And in, in a way, it was kind of insular. It was an insular landscape plan. Right. I spoke with the landscape architects at MVVA, and they were just like, uh, they just put honey locusts everywhere, <laughs> just kind of scads of honey locusts. And it wasn't really this kind of nuanced progression that you might expect from Jens Jensen, but kind of what they came up with is like, oh, like we're, we're the honey locust community with our honey locusts and our herb gardens and, uh, you know, I mean, Lathrop, it's, it's, it's sort of a wall of buildings. They're not, they're not high rises, but mm-hmm. it's a little bit kind of insular form formally. Um, and yeah, I mean, that was kind of a retreat from, you know, the factories that were, that they worked at, they were spewing, uh, you know, sewage into the Chicago river that went right by their home. I um, mean, this was, you know, the Chicago, just a few decades after Upton Sinclair's the jungles. Um, right. so it was, it was a, a nasty brutish place where, uh, life was, was often short and unpleasant. Uh, but yeah, they had this really generous open green and these wonderful buildings. Uh, and yeah, so that one, that one hung on. That's why we, we still have Lathrop today. Right. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting comment about, uh, sort of the contemporary all-star cast of architects and landscape architects who are working on this project versus the kind of all-star cast, you know, a hundred years ago when the project was first made, because somehow like the, the, uh, the, the idea of New Deal humanity, right, has kind of twisted itself into like this kind of idea that what what affordable housing needs is to be more like gentrified in a way. There's like like the idea of like a kayak slip. It's in, in these sort of like um, like herb gardens and everything. Like they're very yuppie, right? I, I mean, yeah. it's it, it's the residents aren't so excited about the kayak slip. They're not as, <laughs> they're not as excited uh, as me. Yeah, uh, as, as I might be. Um, it's it's you know. And the place still is there because they uh, they treated it well and, and kept it there. Yeah, right. And it's like you know the way the way that I, I think about it, it's, it's like certainly the residents who who live in these communities are are deserving and, and and will absolutely benefit from like these kind of amenities that were so often denied to them in the history of CHA. But um, you know to develop those things in a vacuum away from them uh, doesn't, re- doesn't really seem to be like a, maybe sol- solving any problems or, or, or not their problems. I, I don't know. There's, there's some sort of disconnect. I'm wondering if, yeah, if, if you felt that when you're talking to the architects. Uh, yeah. I mean, the architects I spoke with, uh, they, they did spend time with the community and, and get input, um, but they didn't seem like they did that a ton. And I mean that might be mostly at the direction of uh, of the developers at Related Midwest, mm. um, who are excited about uh, yeah g- giving uh, you know the I guess I guess at this point there's really 140 people remaining there, but the, the entire thing is going to be 60 percent affordable, which is a higher percentage than these types of things usually. Are. I mean they're excited about that. They right. they tout that, but again I mean they're asked to play this this role in this, uh, you know, this neoliberal type solution. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the market gets to make a decision, um, about, about housing and has mostly been making those decisions since the seventies and there's not enough of it. And I mean, the biggest bummer is that this, you know, uh, this wacky democratic socialist Bernie Sanders made a pretty historic run, uh, for the presidency and he wasn't out there talking about universal housing. Um, 
Right. So I'm, I'm not I'm not quite sure where that's all headed. I think it's all going to get a lot worse before it gets better, but it might get uh, might get a lot worse really quickly uh, with with Ben Carson in there at HUD. So we'll right. see. Right. Right. Oh yeah. Oh. For a minute, I had forgotten that Ben Carson was in charge of HUD. It was a glorious minute. It's hard to forget for too long. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but it, I mean, it is a question, right? Because they, they tore down so many CHA units, right? And the the way that people apply for this is by by putting their names in for a lottery. And what is it? It's like a it's a infinitesimally infinitesimally small. Um, sort of proportion of people who get their names uh, through the lottery to get into one Yeah, of I mean, the first step project. is applying to be in the lottery. Right. Uh, and so if, if you get your name pulled, like, there's still so many steps after that. I mean, I think Chicago's back, like, 250,000 people. And and most cities uh, are, are see similar ratios in numbers. Right. Um I don't know. And I mean, rural communities, people who voted for Ben Carson's boss, uh, they have really intense uh, housing needs, too. Um, mm-hmm. We'll we'll see if any of that, uh, if any of that get, gets addressed. Kind of doubt it. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's a massive need and it's often kind of not not the first thing people think of in terms of fixing whatever they're trying to fix. Right. Yeah, I it's a it's a hard it's a hard one. It's a, it's a tough nut to crack. Um, hopefully, there'll be some amazing sort of activism to push back and fight for these things. I think you're right when you say that, you know, even even a guy like Bernie Sanders, right? Like this isn't explicitly part of the platform, and it's a need that's so so real. So may, maybe uh, maybe this is an opportunity for us to uh, to sort of throw our hat in the ring and start to make some arguments and 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 push the uh, powers that be on on all sides to uh take housing seriously yeah yeah i've definitely seen um some interesting kind of formulations of uh you know private friendly uh private industry led development that do look really progressive um and could could like maybe Maybe kind of change the paradigm of how this is done in in New York City, for example. There are a couple large projects. One called one's called Via Verde. There's another one that um, WXY and, and Victor Brody Lawson are doing. Uh, it's on the side of a former juvenile detention center, hmm. uh, and it's going to be public housing. But they've invited like every single uh, local nonprofit or kind of. Uh, really well well established business that that wants to open. Um, so there's going to be uh, a health clinic. There's going to be uh, a, a bakery. There's going to be a bank that's headquartered in the South Bronx. There's um, going to be Head Start classes. There's going to be a maker space. Uh, so it really kind of I mean runs the gamut from the kind of neoliberal Ronin maker space dude to you know your health clinic and, and your kids your kids daycare uh, kind of more new deal oriented stuff. And I mean, that's, uh, I think it makes a lot of, a lot of sense to think through affordable housing as, uh, you know, this is primarily housing, but if you're going to fight any social pathology, uh, inequality, whatever, right. uh, maybe move on all the fronts at the same time. And that's really what this, this project called the peninsula in, in Hunts Point, which I'm, I'm going to be writing about soon. Uh, that's really kind of what that goes after. And yeah. I mean, to do, I mean, it's, it's great to bring a bank in there and it's great to bring uh, a, uh, a grocery store and a, and a local bakery. Um, it, it just, it just gets really bad when uh, the uh, people with all the decision power um, are 
private developers and they right. decide who, how many units there are going to be right. and, and the income yeah, ratio. It's a, it's a pretty uh, stark denial of, of housing, which, which should absolutely be a human right. Well, when you uh, finish your Hunts Point article, we'll have to have you back on this show. Yeah, don't um, Thanks for joining us. And you guys are listening to Buildings on Air on WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. We'll be back in a few. Welcome back to Buildings on Air, the show about architecture here on Lumpen Radio. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and we are joined by Anne Louie and Craig Reschke of Future Firm for our perennially favorite uh, segment, our regular segment, The Mailbag, where we listen and answer your questions about architecture. Um, welcome, guys. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Good. Hey. Hey. So let's, let's jump right in. Got a lot of really good questions, <laughs> cold from uh, from coworkers and uh, emails and the internet. It's a it's a really great mix, um, and and sort of a serious question. Um, so, uh, I'm in architecture school, and I'm worried my job will be automated out of existence. What do you guys think? What should I be worried about? <laughs> Make an alliance with the robots very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why this person feels like they are worried that they will be automated out of a job. Like, there are so many people who I can understand being worried about this. And architecture seems like not a field where this is, for me, an urgent question. Like, we should be involved in questions of automation, but our own jobs don't seem necessarily immediately at risk. Well, and I think that the type of the type of architecture that will first be automated is the kind of type of architecture that architects are already not involved in. Right. So, kind of Home Depot stores, Walmart stores, uh, suburban tract housing, these type of things that have kind of minimal involvement from the profession already seem to be the most ripe for this kind of automation. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess you could say like those that kind of work is already automated. Like there is some architect who just stamps 10,000 Best Buy stores and Olive Gardens, like each with a slightly different flourish, right? Right. So like that's already automated, not in the sense of like there's a robot drawing a plan, but like spatial products have replaced customized architecture. Well, and we talked with Andrew Human about this a little bit, right? Like, Who is what? our friend who works at Woods Bagot and knows more about computers <laughs> than any of us will know in our entire lives? <laughs> yeah, he has Wood Bagot's uh, Revit Grasshopper Coordinator, Guru. Yeah, yeah, like all those are, uh, magician. For those who don't know, those are some of the softwares we use to produce yeah. to produce the buildings. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so he is a kind of uh, all around, I would say, expert. And uh, we asked him about automation, and he seemed to think that it was not not something right. he was really concerned about. Well, yeah. and it just feels like in our in our practice, <laughs> in our day to day lives, like the things that we do are actually um, more about negotiation and translation than they are necessarily about production. Like I think when I was at mm. an office, I did feel like often we were kind of like grinding on tasks. But now that we run our own office, it's about like helping somebody find their way through the department of buildings or helping somebody understand what they want to do with their kitchen or, you know, like talking right. about how their business might be improved by changing their space. And like, 
I'm hoping those are the things where architects continue to be valid and useful and not. Right. But in 20 years, if Anne and I are living on the street, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> then we'll have, have no more jobs. <laughs> Asking for handouts from bots. Like, give us some free Bitcoins. Right. Like, we don't compute. Yeah. I always want... <laughs> I always wonder about this because, you know, like this, like automation is a perennial fear, um, like almost endemic to sort of capitalism, right? Like you have died, like the McDonald's guy was mm. talking about how Fight for 15 has a real big problem on their hands. This is the group that's fighting for a $15 minimum wage, right? Mm. Because uh, now McDonald's is going to automate like their customer service people mm. and you'll just be able to like order a Big Mac on an iPad or something. But, like, there's, there was such a thing, like, 60 years ago, it was called an automat, right? You put your <laughs> you put your coin in, in the thing, and then the door opened, and you grabbed, like, you know, autom- automation has been sort of around for a long time and part of our kind of cultural imaginary. Um, but it's, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. It's hard to parse out where it's, like, a, a real fear and where it's sort of, like, a, a kind of, like, ideo- ideological construction. Um Well, and I guess I would tell this student that hopefully architecture school is preparing them for a a way of thinking and a kind of creative endeavor that has uh, a lot more at stake than just making buildings. So they can always find, uh, hopefully those skills will be useful across many professions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, have you read the Nick Cernak? book the platform capitalism book uh the yeah like demand full auto like life without work book yeah yeah um somebody somewhere is cringing at my horrible butchering (laughs) of his name uh yeah the um i i have read that book yeah i'm also forgetting what it's called it has the red cover it has the red cover um it i think it's called a a world without work (laughs) no that's the the there's the david frame book oh sorry that's yeah (laughs) anyway (laughs) but like i think there is possibility for liberation and certain things being automated right Mm -hmm. like yeah the universal wage or like is there a way that some architecture tasks which in fact are not useful and painfully time consuming can be automated that frees us up to act more as agents of the built environment or discussing spatial governance or things where you need people and you don't need bots. Yeah. Or like simply like, yeah, advocates for, uh, you know, the people who use the buildings, right? Uh, All all of them. Um, Well, let's move on to another question. So have no fear. (laughs) Have no fear. Have no fear, young one. (laughs) (laughs) We've got uh, a kind of... uh, this is a oh, this is a nervous question. My house has a bad smell ever since my husband put a propane heater in the basement. How can I get rid of the smell? <laughs> get rid of the husband? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Why? What do you think? I guess I would want to follow up and ask if it was a propane heater that is uh, permanently attached to a gas supply or if it has its own... Uh, gas tank because if it is permanently attached to a gas supply i would say that it is is probably leaking right yeah (laughs) and 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 the question of what do i do to get rid of the smell is perhaps one of life and death (laughs) (laughs) right that the smell is probably just a flag of a bigger concern (laughs) 
Well, uh, maybe the answer is air freshener. Right, right. <laughs> Buy a Glade. Yeah, because I, I don't think that the gas actually has a smell. They add the smell into it. So you know that getting rid of it is like uh, it's uh, it's all it's all Gordian knot of uh, you know you should call someone. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> A licensed plumber, perhaps. Do not call this radio show. <laughs> In fact, immediately. I mean, you probably don't need to evacuate, but you probably do need to call someone. Yeah. The city will probably come look at it for free. Actually, right. Yeah. Yeah. Or the gas company. They send they send those guys with the uh, sniffers um, to come around. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the Ghostbusters. Yeah, yeah, they do look like Ghostbusters. <laughs> okay. So the answer to that one is yeah, get get yeah. some air freshener. Here's but maybe in the immediate future, open a window. Right. Yes. There you go. <laughs> and don't light any matches. <laughs> yeah. Uh, here's here's a, a tragically related question. Uh, carbon monoxide alarm going off question mark so I just got home from school it's going off but it's like beep and then it will wait about a minute then beep again what does this mean is there a carbon monoxide leak in my house I think it means it's running out of batteries yes. yeah yeah. I think so, too. so I, not as urgent I only know this because once Craig and I went on vacation and then we kept sleeping and <laughs> we would like wake up and then we'd go to sleep and then we were convinced that we had carbon monoxide poisoning and we had to like check the carbon. The short answer is we did not have carbon monoxide you were poisoning. Just feeling very we were just really tired because it had been a really long semester. <laughs> but if it beeps not urgently but periodically, it yeah. means it needs new batteries, not that you have carbon monoxide right. poisoning. And PSA, I mean, you know, we live in Chicago and in, in a lot of old houses. And, uh, you know, the carbon monoxide monitor is there. It's like a, as, as a matter of law, your landlord is supposed mm-hmm. to supply one. Yes. Because uh, a lot of folks will use their ovens to heat their house, right? And it's, uh, which is, you know, a whole, a whole larger sort of issue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, that's why it exists. So, you know, be sure that it is plugged in. Hopefully you have the plug-in one, not the mm. battery one. Mm. But, um, yeah. Be mindful of that, folks. And, uh, you know, your winter lethargy might not be because of the dark skies in short days. <laughs> it might be because uh, you're, you're doing something ill-advised. Uh, That's actually, I think, one of the number one building violations that we see is no uh, smoke detectors and carbon monoxide detectors. I see, yeah. Yeah. And well, and here's a here's a related question that's very serious. Uh, but I'm renting an apartment in a Chicago two flat. What can I do to make my apartment more sustainable? I'm only laughing when you say it's serious, because clearly if it's really serious, you probably shouldn't be calling into this radio show with your yeah, no. urgent yes. building crisis right. problem. Yeah. Um, they're, they're renting an apartment? They're, they're renting, renting an apartment. apartment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To make their apartment more... So I assume they don't mean, like, what are life changes that they can make to be a more sustainable human? Because, like, I'm sure... Yeah. <laughs> like, take a shorter shower. Like, those are kind yeah. of whatever. And we all know that, like, it's something really tragic. Like, only 12% of recycling in Chicago, like, actually gets recycled. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so it's not that. Yeah, uh, it's not that. <laughs> um, Maybe make a compost pile in your backyard. Our neighbors recently did that. And Chicago does not yeah. have a composting... Um, infrastructure. So, but you could take. You can also like take your compost to Iron Street if you happen to live in Bridgeport. If this is a Bridgeport <laughs> local question, yeah. Um, you could put that. I mean, it depends on how nice of an apartment they have. Like, I guess if they're living, you know, in Trump Tower with a curtain wall, this is not going to help. But if you live in Bridgeport, you can insulate your windows a little better using that 
cheap saran wrap stuff and i think that will keep your uh heat heat down a little bit yeah Yeah, and if you can if you control your own heat you can turn that down when you leave for the day turn it back up at night um but a lot of chicago apartments uh you're not really controlling your own heat so that's yeah that's hard to do um this just makes it sound like you can't do anything that we are just (laughs) like victims of ecological crisis (laughs) and we should just cry and watch I don't know, the day after tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can do like also like low flow fixtures maybe or like some of the adapters. But it's also interesting because most folks who don't control their heat, they have radiators, which Mm -hmm. is a very sustainable way to heat your home already. Because uh, there's, I don't know. Have, have Judging you... from my gas bill, it's not a very sustainable <laughs> way to heat your home. Yeah, it's like, well, there's a matter of, um, I think Kiel Mo, the uh, the guy who teaches at, at Harvard, t- writes about this quite a bit, right? Where, you know, air is sort of a less dense conveyance uh, than liquid, yeah. right? So it's, it's a lot e- uh, less resource intensive to heat water. And use that to, to, you know, make the heat go and, and make you feel warm by running it through pipes than sort of just blasting air with fire and sending it on its way. Um, just it's like a matter of physics. Um, so, right. Yeah. I mean, I think Kyle's a great one to read. Michelle Addington also writes about. Um, oh, that's right. His name's pronounced Kyle, not Kiel. Yeah, we it's... don't know. <laughs> if you're listening, please call in and phonetically spell out the pronunciation of your name. We've heard both. We suspect it's like probably some indicator of whether you are like on the bleeding edge of energy discourse, whether you know how to say his name correctly or not. <laughs> I do have convergence in my bag right now, trying to get yeah, through it. So. There you go. See, this is the show where 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 Harvard thinking on environmentalism meets your radiator and your two flat. Um, All right. Well, here's another question. How to easily overcome remote control interference from my apartment neighbor? My new apartment has a bedroom ceiling fan light, which has both a wall switch and a remote control. Apparently, one of my immediately adjacent neighbors has a ceiling fan remote with with the exact same frequency as mine. So now my fan and light keep going on and off in the middle of the night. Is there some quick and easy, cheap solution I can do to my apartment to solve this problem? (laughs) I would say the extremely low-tech version would be to go upstairs and ask your neighbor why they are turning their fan on and off in the middle of the night, and could they please stop? There's probably a, what's the building tech solution? I think if you take the battery thing off of the remote, there's a code inside of it, just like there is for your garage door, and you then can take the panel off of the fan and change yeah. both codes. All right. I know you're right, but let's pretend you're not. <laughs> That's too straightforward of a solution. Yeah. That was the real answer. That's the real answer. I, yeah. Is another answer to shut it off at the switch? Because no, like the switch yeah. probably controls mm-hmm. uh, the the switch is interrupting the flow of electric to the light, right? Yeah. And the remote is controlling it at the light. You could get a broom and <laughs> pound on the ceiling every time it happens. Mostly, I just want like the really, uh, I want to see the listener pictures of them having lined their apartment with tin foil <laughs> <laughs> or copper mesh and, and turned it into a Faraday cage or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, cr- construct a tin foil hat, right. sit in your bathtub and hope for the best. Yeah, hey, uh, we might all be there shortly, right? Oh, yeah. So, uh, ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> 
Yeah, the the answer, as uh, if you listen to enough sort of paranoid activists, is that you know to solve this problem, they should really be downloading and Signal. using Signal. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. You should be accessing your fan by dark web. Right. Yeah. If, if you're not, then the world is at risk. Although, or you know, or I think maybe the straightforward solution is to not have things run by remote control in your apartment. So right. replace your fan. Because it's yeah. not Do even you, an Internet of Things problem. It's a pre-Internet of Things problem. Like it's not like they're being hacked by their neighbor. There's just some right. crossing of signals. No, it's like we kid, but this is like a real problem, right? Like now you have your your iHome app, mm. and like you know your your switches and thermostat and everything else is like it's totally yeah connected. Um, it, it, you're saying you, like we don't live down the street in a place where we're considering putting saran wrap over the windows and my iHome app connects to absolutely nothing. We have the lowest tech, we have the lowest tech house. Recently a light bulb went out and well, you're telling me it's not the light bulb. I had to move a light while Craig was out of town because I couldn't fix the <laughs> kitchen light. I think it's the switch. Yeah, yeah it seems yeah. to be the well, switch. How many architects does it take to uh, change the light bulb? <laughs> More than one, <laughs> More apparently. Than one. <laughs> <laughs> I changed the light bulb. I, I didn't just stand there and like a damsel in distress <laughs> in horror. Like, I, I tried the obvious solution and it didn't yeah. work. Here's a good question. I'm going to read it exactly how it's written. Okay. Um, uh, uh, women, what is the best way to dehumidify your home after a flood? Parentheses, I don't want any mansplaining. So, Anne, you should. <laughs> oh, but I don't know anything. <laughs> I have a vagina, but I don't know anything about this. So can you tell me and then I will r- repeat it in a non-mansplaining way? Uh, I think get a dehumidifier and open all the windows. Yep. Okay, girl, <laughs> first <laughs> get a dehumidifier. <laughs> Kick out all the dudes. <laughs> Dehumidify. <laughs> I'm not trying to undermine what I think is a f- fair question. I just don't know right. anything about dehumidification. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, yeah, I think the best way is to, to um, yeah, sort of get, get information and, and make the men do that work for you. That's, yeah. that's, 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 yeah. that's my quick feminist solution. Yes, yeah. uh, appear confused, allow them to mansplain, <laughs> and then go get a beer down the street while they're dehumidifying. <laughs> More, more importantly, I think, uh, fix whatever is causing the flood. Right. Yes. Sandbags. Yeah. Sandbags. So. Oh, I, I'm assuming it's a, like a, a, a natural a leak, disaster not, flood. Not a flood flood. Well, we do have this issue in Chicago a lot, right? Where we, we all have basements and, um, yeah, the, the basements are perennially flooding here in the city because of the way that the sewers are yeah. made. Yeah, we it's, just, it's actually not that the water is coming in from the outside. It's that it's coming up the, the pipe. pipes in your basement. Yeah. yeah. Apparently, you just need some sort of pipe extender is what I learned this week. Yeah, that's right. There's like usually the, the floor drains, um, most of the time they'll have like a threading in them and you yeah. just get a taller pipe. Yeah, the, because it's about gravity, not about right. volume, right? Yeah, right. it's like uh, the way that like, uh, you know, water always equalizes, right? It mm. always wants to be at a level. And so the issue is that we have combined sewer overflow in the city of Chicago. So that means that, you know, where your toilet flushes to is the same place as where the stormwater is going. Mm. So, um, and because of the like dirt in the city and, and the way that we've developed it historically, all of those sewers are really high up. And so a lot of times your basement is like only slightly higher. Mm. 
than those sewers. So when that water fills up um, in, in a big storm event, then it's trying to equalize the level of the water right up into your basement. Um, and that's why the water is also point, so it's nasty. Not, yeah, it's yeah. not just water anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so here's, let's see. Let's, we've got some good questions. So. Um, <laughs> my bed possibly moved by itself? Question mark. Me and my girlfriend share a king size bed with wheels on the bottom, and I have carpet flooring, so it is too heavy to have moved when we were on it. Uh, but we had gone downstairs and it moved a couple inches. I noticed because wheels had left marks in the carpet that were visible. Any thoughts on how this could have happened? Is this person in Chicago? Did they live in California? Was there an earthquake? <laughs> the car would be the best right. reason. No, there's there's no further information. <laughs> Are they on the blind moon? <laughs> <laughs> well, they didn't say it was a California king, so that's mm. probably... <laughs> and, right, that's the only place where right, I can exactly. uh, have California kings. But, um, I was actually yeah, recently in my first earthquake. Oh, yeah. And oh. Anne and I were in Lake Tahoe, and we had just gone to sleep, and... <laughs> And woke up and said, why are people running across the roof? <laughs> I grew up in California, so I, you know, I was in Loma Prieta in 1989. I have experience with earthquakes, but when you're sleeping, it is really a surprising feeling. So I think I like woke up and it was kind of noisy or like there was also vibration and I was like, I thought, yeah, Santa had arrived and <laughs> we're like dragging, was dragging a big heavy bag of I don't know. Toys across the roof. Okay. Well, if they're not in California, uh, I do not know. Is there? Do they have a dog? Yeah. Well, <laughs> when in doubt, for us, it's usually the dog. <laughs> I also wonder if it's maybe not like a throwback to our session, our show a couple of weeks ago or a couple months ago, rather, with a with a water bed, right? Like if they have a water bed and it's super heavy. Um, it could be causing a structural issue in in their in their part. This is like yeah, worst is case the, is scenario. Is their floor level? Yeah. Has 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 this questioner asked their girlfriend? <laughs> Perhaps she was looking for something under the bed. Right, right, uh, yeah, or, or yeah. Uh. Well, I guess so. The architectural response would be get a level, put it on the floor, see if the floor is level, and if it's slanting towards the way your your bed is yeah. moving. This but, seems more like a Ghostbusters question, though, and not an architectural question. Well, and and to be a little bit blue, you know, like how do beds usually move, right? It's like, like especially if it's on wheels, probably not an architecture question. Yeah, yeah. Um, not appropriate for the radio. <laughs> that's right. There is. Uh, <laughs> Was it Valentine's Day? Was it after Valentine's Day? Right. Were you celebrating any big news at work? <laughs> So uh, here's here's one question. We've got a few a few minutes left, um, but I, it's a it's a serious one. I've been an architect for a long time, but I've never read any architecture theory. Can you tell me why it's important and maybe some good books I should start off with? Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah. <laughs> but where to start? Yeah, why is architecture theory important? Oh. Uh, I think. I really like reading. <laughs> I, don't know. I think that for me, if there are no broader questions and stakes and context of the work we're doing, then we're just clicking. Right? Yeah. Then we then we are automated. If if there aren't kind of values or issues behind the work that we're doing, but what book to start with? That is the more important <laughs> question. Like I I want to say a good book that's going to be like really spicy and it's going to like have a reason or, or feel like. It, like feel like there's payoff like you're not going to want to start with I don't want to like malign anyone here but like I feel like if you start with something like really dry and 
yeah old like it's like don't start with Deleuze that'll be like miserable yeah it can can I suggest Delirious New York? Would that be too obvious? That would have been my suggestion. Really? I mean, Both yeah. of you are thinking Delirious New York is your first thought for architectural theory. I think it's very that accessible. Is kind of the, yeah. Yeah. And like you get to read about Coney Island and there's like naked gentlemen eating oysters wearing boxing gloves. Yeah. I was going to so I was going to ask if you could explain more of the premise of Delirious New York, oh. but I think that's a pretty <laughs> if if uh, if that's not an enticement, uh, I I don't know what is. Um yeah, but it, it's it's a, it's a, it reads almost like a novel. Yeah. I think they should read Walled States Waning Sovereignty by Wendy Brown, which is not oh, really yeah. architectural theory, but is about the U.S.-Mexico border, which seems timely. And I suspect that architects will need to chime in on this very yes. soon. Perhaps uh, write a letter. Right. <laughs> so I think that there's something thinking about what is the role of architecture in defining self and other, about yeah, spatial governance, about how we can be complicit in kind of systems or regimes that are probably more complex than we think. I think that, yeah. but so, that's not architectural theory, so no, that's a cop-out. But they, but they are certainly the pressing questions of our yeah. moment. I want to also choose something else written by women, because like starting with REM also seems like, yeah. you know, oh. whoever asked the de- dehumidifying question is going to feel like I'm not doing a good, good job <laughs> representing good architectural theory sure. from women. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can always complexity and contradiction in architecture is, is, yeah. is always a good is always a good read too. Um, that's that's Venturi. I'm I'm thinking learning from Las Vegas. That's right. when Denise Scott Brown entered mm. the equation. But anyway, we we do have to cut to okay. a break. Can we respond on the internet? Can we develop a bi- bibliography and yeah, post it? Let's get a buildings on air bibliography okay. going. Yeah, it's perfect. Uh, I'm sure something will come to me the minute I step out of the door. Sure, yeah, okay. Ter- terrific. Well, Anne, Craig, thanks for joining us. Thank yeah, you. Thanks for having yeah, us. Yeah, we'll we'll see you again next month. Please send those questions and folks. This is buildings on air. We'll be back in a few minutes. <laughs> We are back with Buildings on Air here on Lumpen Radio. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and I'm joined by Priyanka Shah and Sarah Rafson uh, of uh, the Architecture Lobby and Architects, respective, respectively. And uh, we're here to talk about the Women's March in D.C. Both of you guys were there. Sort of there was, a, there was an architect's block. Um, and, yeah, maybe, maybe you can start off by just kind of introducing yourself and, and talk about how you got involved in uh, this kind of activism as a, as a practitioner in the built environment. Sarah? Yeah, that sounds great. Um, so I run Pointline Projects, an editorial and curatorial agency out of Pittsburgh now. But before that, I, was, uh, I sort of got into this activism um, as someone in the architectural discourse, more as an editor and writer, based in New York when I was still at Columbia. And I uh, did my thesis research on uh, feminist activism throughout the 90s. In fact, a couple of really cool Chicago-based groups, I'd like to shout out to Chicago listeners uh, who might remember the Karyatids in uh, 1993. So once I found out about groups like that, I was thinking about um, how to get involved now because as I looked around, I did see glaring gender bias in the in the field. So um, it was out of that research that I got involved with Architects, which was just forming in 2000. Oh, 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 
we've got a we've got some internet troubles here, so we just we just lost Sarah. Um, hopefully, the audio will cut back in. But Priyanka, in the meantime, maybe you can uh, introduce yourself and and you know you're a fellow member of the Architecture Lobby, uh, an organization which I count myself um, in. So welcome to the show. Yeah, you're you're a pivotal figure. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. I did, uh, do my best. Yeah, I, I joined the architecture lobby a little over a year ago, and um, I I graduated from MIT in the in the heart of the last recession, and um, you know that sort of beginning will make issues of labor sort of always very central to anything you do for the rest of your life. Right. Uh, because it was so hard to get a job, but um, you know that that particular condition apart, just the daily working lives of architects are sort of written in some ways. I, I like to I like to tell friends that everything Marx wrote about labor is true of me. And uh, <laughs> and, and I, like I, to tell my I, I find that, that a little shocking <laughs> given that we work in the professional world and this is not blue collar labor. And yet somehow all of that lands on us. Uh, so I work uh, as an architect in New York City, and I have reviews now. Um, and uh, and and given that we're going to talk about the Women's March, um, it's it's impossible at the moment to divorce issues of labor with issues of gender, right. because they kind of intersect almost wholly on you know women architects. Um, and and we can break the categories down, you know, whether it's wage transparency, whether it's paid family leave, whether it's the way people advance within the workforce and how people are seen, the kind of agency they get. Gender and labor intersect of, on all of these fronts. Right. Um, and so I look forward to talking more about it. Yeah. And Sarah, I don't know if your audio is back on yet. Can you hear us now? I can hear. I can <laughs> Good. see. And we can Thank hear you. you. I'm back with you. <laughs> yeah, so, Wait, sorry so, for that. No, it's okay. So you're you're beginning to tell us about uh, this this fabulous group, Architects. Uh, that's ar- almost spelled spelled like architect, but with two X's at the end. Oh, that's, yes. that's, that's hard to explain two on X's radio. At the yeah. End. <laughs> yeah, and and you know we have been confronting the fact that um, in these days where um, you know, gender binary, people are pushing back on the concept of gender. We do have a double X in the name because we are still um, approaching inequities in the profession from the stance that um, women as a um, biological (laughs) category um, have been left out of the success, uh, haven't gone a fair slice of the pie, as they say. And our organization is particularly positioned to... um, link issues of the academy and practice. Mm -hmm. So what that really plays out um, in a lot of the issues that Priyanka was talking about, um, preparing students through education for success in future careers. And we just want to highlight some of the ways that um, issues of representation of women and gender, um, whether that's in the press or lecture series or exhibitions or course syllabi. Um, I think your previous speakers were talking about um, the need to read more work by women writers. Yeah. So we tried to co- you know, connect all of those issues. So when people were asking, you know, what do architects need from the Women's March? We were thinking about it very holistically in terms of uh, what students need and practitioners need. 
Yeah. So, so what, what are those things? You know, it's, uh, we now also have to deal with not, not only the profession, but kind of, uh, these issues in, in the, in the greater context. Um, it's, it's, you know, been very heartening to see, um, especially women, women sort of led movements and moments and protests in, in the last few, few months. Um, so yeah, like what, what, are, what are those needs? Where do we go? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, because some of the issues that are sort of part of a general discussion, such as the wage gap, you mm -hmm. know, that exists for women across the board, but in architecture, that is, of course, a thing. Um, however, architecture is more pronounced in terms of its attrition rate. Um, so the wage gap is plays out, interestingly, when we consider that 43% of women graduating from architecture are graduating from art accredited architecture programs in 2015, but um, still only make 17% of the current AIA membership. And of course, you know, when we talk about leaders, race, yeah. we talk about leadership of that six, 15, of that 15%, uh, it's only about a quarter of that, if that, that are actually partners in the firm. So we're talking about um, hoping to increase women leadership at all levels. Mm -hmm. But another thing that is part of a general discussion, but particularly marked in architects uh, in architecture, and I think I mentioned this with uh, in the march with uh, our group, is uh, the Family Medical Leave Act and the idea yeah. of parental leave, because um, the Family Medical Leave Act, which uh, covers uh, companies with fifty percent or fifty employees or more, uh, disproportionately affects architects in it because our industry. 95% of architecture firms are fewer than 50 employees or more. That leaves over half of architectural staff uh, without this coverage, and it takes special um, voluntary consent from leadership to provide parental leave. And that's an issue that both men and women in the profession have to deal with. Um, right. The lack of child care. And, uh, and then, of course, when we were uh, a, a lot of press has... Uh, you know, people have been talking about gender bias, uh, unconscious bias, and sexual harassment in the workplace. That's also a big concern for us. And what I loved about uh, our contingent at the Women's March was that we had pink hard hats on. And <laughs> it made us very visible. But also, it was a great reminder that we're standing in solidarity with women uh, who go into construction sites and who are maybe not respected as leaders um, in all aspects of their work. So that's something that we really want to promote, um, uh, images of strong women um, in all aspects of their career. Yeah, it's And there is there is another intersection of the, you know, the paid family leave and wage gap, because across the working world, because of women being, you know, sort of biologically responsible for having children, uh, the setbacks that they naturally encounter when they have children uh, in their careers because of the time that they take off and then they when, when they go back, they kind of, you know, it they go back to where they left off or maybe even below that. And those sort of, those gaps get compounded over their career. And so there's a kind of inbuilt wage gap in taking a hit for having a child because your progression in your career and your firm is set back because you had a child. And then there is a sort of perception that women do not need to be paid as much as men. Mm -hmm. And so there's, you know, there's a compounding effect 
in within architecture in other professions as well but architecture also we should call out as one of the most highly educated sort of workforce and given the level of education one of the most lowly paid right yeah there's there's definitely a and gap so the, and and so when one sort of takes in the cost of the upfront cost of becoming an architect and the payback over lifetime and women who have sort of you know gender issues compound that problem and these are some of the things that the architect lobby as a, as, as a group that advocates for for labor fairness in architecture is sort of you know also focusing on and we should also give your listeners our urls if they're interested in um in in going out and checking out our yeah. website yeah <laughs> we will we will we will put it on the show's twitter yeah uh, yeah right but yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a, a, a lot of really good points. You know, it's a, a, you know, racism, sexism, misogyny, right? Like these things have a, a structural <laughs> component to them that right. that they're, they're the literally the tools that uh, um, you know the people in charge use to uh, d- divide those that might otherwise overthrow them, right? Um, and and I think <laughs> that's become uh, if if nothing else, right? The last three months has shown what happens when there's a full full like full frontal attack on on um, um, you know the, the 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 working people and uh, marginalized communities at this country. It's you know um, we mentioned Marx, right? And uh, if if he says that capitalism sows the seeds of its own destruction, then it's it's sowing them <laughs> at, at a exceptional <laughs> speed right now. Um, you know uh, b- because of that. But yeah, I, you know I'm wondering. Um, if uh, you took anything back from the march, right? You know, I think we, we talk about these issues a lot in architecture, but, um, you know, now that the context has gotten um, so much worse, really, in the last three months, there's a kind of new urgency around it that changes it from, you know, sort of professional advocacy and trying to change change laws and make things better um, to, to a kind of uh, us as part of a movement now, right? There's these connections that get made between like a proletarianizing professional class and, you know, us as architects, I mean, at the end of the day, we're still relatively privileged workers, but, but also with Pfeiffer 15, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that, that's kind of a jumble, but, you know, I'm, I'm just wondering if as, as now we're part of this movement, what do we, what do we take back from it to, to make our own work um, uh, better? I think one of the things we take back from it is um, is that we have to step beyond the identity of architect as well. Mm-hmm. We we coalesce and and organize around that identity to feed inwards back to the profession. That's really important to do. We are not community organizers, but I think one of the things we take back by participating in a larger, uh, you know, sort of activist moment that involves all of society is that. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to make the distinction between we've had a lot of paper projects that go after, uh, you know, political issues, but none of them replace participation and activism. Right. And I think that's one of the things we take back from this moment is the sort of direct involvement. Yeah, for sure. Sarah? Yeah, I, I want to echo okay. that for sure. I mean, something that came away, you know, I it, obviously I feel passionate about the ways that the profession needs to change to make, not make more room, but, you know, distribute its successes more equitably. 
Mm-hmm. But um, but that again, I think you know what Priyanka is saying. Absolutely, we can't take we can't isolate ourselves any more than we already are from these larger discussions. And what was so inspiring to me, back to something that might have got cut off when I uh, unfortunately dropped the call, but. Um, is that we're not the first to be thinking through this. And so what I've started to do is to look at um, other moments of social upheaval in U.S. history. I mean, women have been in the profession um, advocating for uh, different, uh, in in different ways since the 1960s, basically. Uh, 1970s for sure, when the women's movement intersected with um, architectural feminism and something really beautiful happened that wasn't just about creating more space in the academy and practice, it was also about um, looking outward and channeling um, architectural expertise uh, to communities in need. And um, so I'm really looking uh, at past practices as ways to move forward. Um, and hoping that, you know, as a profession, we can become a little bit more self-reflexive about the movements that have come before so that it's not, uh, it's something that we learn alongside our building precedents that, right. you know, pa- you know, activism in the 70s, 80s and 90s um, can really help inform different models of organizing and um, protest today. So that's what I am hoping that, it, that really uh, coalesced because I, I saw so many uh, protesters of different generations and I kept thinking they must have been here before. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, before. It, it truly is. It's and their sign said, why am I still doing why this? Why am I still doing this? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lost history, right? It's, a, you know, we, we inherit these traditions and we sort of stand on the shoulders of giants, right? But um, a lot of times it's hard, it's hard to know where to look for those giants. You know, in fact, in the context of architectural activism, I came across uh, – um, um, an article today. It was m- more of a, a letter of demands, really, from the Architects Resistance, right? Which was a group that was organized in in the early '70s, and they had this awesome letter and list of demands about um, the AIA and and apartheid, right? Like, you know, th- there, there's even a history of this, like, in our deeply conservative profession that we can draw on and 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 take as an inspiration. Um, and, and you know, those things things happen, things change. Right. The apartheid is not a thing anymore. Right. We still have to deal with the uh, with with structural racism and and, and lots of lots of other issues. Right. But but, um, you know, definitely as corny as it is, the the long arc of history uh, bends towards justice. But but also we have to work for it. Um, We 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 bend that arc. Yes. So uh, let me put in a shameless plug for uh, architects. We are. (laughs) currently organizing an exhibition now to to really generate serious coalescence and discussion around exactly these issues and trying to we're building a team of partners um to look forward and look back so i hope that we can continue this discussion there in 2018 yeah and uh and indeed uh as a member of the architecture lobby and uh you you know many of us uh, priyanka and myself included um we'd probably love to work with you on that. So we yeah, could right. say, say over the air. <laughs> <laughs> Good, I'll let you do it. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I think that was just the biggest thing is, you know, it, when the AIA talks about, you know, uh, advocating for the value of design to the larger public, I think there's no better way than to actually demonstrate that we are there 
putting the practice to to work with people mm-hmm. outside of the profession right. and not just a privileged set of clients but a larger community that actually needs the services in different ways so yeah um, yeah so i think that's the way that you know even though we're a smaller organization than the aia we can begin to um work towards common goals right and uh, certainly push them towards a kind of like less corporate focused um, sort of feminism um, to, to one that is actually advocating for a kind of genuine inclusivity and not just sort of uh, tokenizing people of color and uh, women as props in stock photos. Um, maybe that's too harsh. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but 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 I I, 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 I think they can uh, I think they can be pushed in that direction. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll keep fighting the good fight. Um, so we got to wrap it up soon. But I'm, I'm wondering if you guys have any closing comments. Priyanka. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, we, we're only audio on air, but we are looking at each other. Yes. <laughs> No, I, I, I think that it, it's it's also important with, uh, we have to work from within and from outside, like from inside out and outside in. And, and one of the things we do want to, you know, we are talking about the interse- intersections of gender and labor in architecture, that the way profit is driven across sort of businesses everywhere is by skimming off of the lower grades. Yeah. And I think we have to call out that the wage gap, the gender wage gap, is one way that profits are being generated in architecture. And this is somewhere where the AIA can, you know, if they wish to take a step uh, towards gender equity, can sort of address this because, you know, the AIA is the sort of uh, umbrella body that we have right now. And it's our charge, I think, to push towards the, uh, there there is there is a space for an alternative but what we really want to do is effect a change from within in the mainstream yes. that's what we're going for absolutely and and Such i think that that's what the march was also about the march was not about an alternative the march was about a fairer norm for everyone oh it's such a good point very very well put Sarah, do you have any any last comments Yeah, um, I was just thinking um, that, you know, in a a month or so, we're going to be streaming a a film here in Pittsburgh called um, Five Women Changing the Face of Architecture. Um, And I don't want to be surprised anymore or have to screen the film anymore that that we need to organize events based on women in architecture. I want it to be, uh, or or women or race or, you know, minorities or I want it to be a place for all and I think the more different uh, avenues that groups like the lobby groups like architects are using to uh, um, really attack the problem I mean there are groups in in uh, New Orleans you know design justice platform is a new initiative Mm -hmm. out of there I really appreciate the plethora of ways that we're all attacking the problem from our different perspectives to make it uh yeah, uh, an equitable place that reflects the values of the Women's March. Yeah, it is. A, it is certainly a shining light and a point of optimism, um, in in what are often dark times. Um, well, Sarah, 
Priyanka, thanks for joining. I think that's a, a good place to end. And um, we'll, we'll talk thanks to you having... later. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kiefer. All right. Thanks. All right. All right. So this is a, we're back with Buildings on Air. And I think this was a good show, episode number four. So remember, uh, episode number five will be next uh, first Saturday of the month, uh, sometime in March. I forget what the exact day is. I don't know. Uh, but from 2 to 4 p.m. And uh, you can send in questions in our mailbag. You can go to buildingsonair at gmail.com. Send those questions in. We'll get them answered for you. And uh, that's our show. Thanks for listening. This is uh, WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM, Lumpen Radio.